Well, good morning. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. What a way to conclude our series on the gospel of Mark. It seems fitting to end this way since Mark has been walking alongside us during this pandemic. And what an exclamation point this morning. Our text today is Mark chapter 15. We're going to read verses 21 down through the end of the chapter, verse 47. We're actually going to start in the last few words of verse 20. This is Mark chapter 15, beginning at the end of verse 20. This is what God's Word says to us this morning. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joses, and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. 
verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And so this morning, we get to behold the infinite love of Christ towards sinners like us. The gospel is of first importance to us as Christians. It is the power of God for salvation. It is our daily protection from the powers of evil that rage against us. The gospel is the cure for distrust and unbelief in our souls. The gospel frees us from sin's power. The gospel clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. The gospel humbles us because it's not about our performance. It's all about Christ's work on our behalf. And the cross of Christ is the core of the gospel. The gospel is referred to as the word of the cross. The apostle Paul said, we preach Christ crucified. That's the core of our message. I remember as a college student, a brand new Christian in CCK being exhorted that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. This is the main thing. I was exhorted to live a cross-centered life, to preach the gospel to myself every day. Exhorted to take 10 looks at the cross for every one look at my sin. Now, I have not done that perfectly over the last 20 years, but for 20 years the cross has been on public display each and every Sunday through the preaching of the word and through the songs we sing and the prayers we pray. My gaze has continually been drawn upward to the cross over and over and over. May it always be that way for Cornerstone Church. This morning, let's take 10 looks at the cross. And as we draw near to the cross, my prayer is that you would experience fresh amazement at the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ for you. So let's walk with Mark as he takes us step by step down this path to Golgotha. At the end of chapter 15, After condemning Jesus in this kangaroo court and delivering him to Pilate after the whole battalion has mocked him and beaten him continuously and spat on him, now they are leading him out to be crucified. Typically, the condemned carried the crossbar 
to the site of the crucifixion. And in verse 21, we find Jesus being so weakened by the flogging and loss of blood that he couldn't carry it alone. And so a passerby, Simon, is called upon to carry it for him. And just imagine Simon out of nowhere becoming a part of this story. Mark in verse 21 names for us the sons of Simon, Alexander, and Rufus, which has led many to believe that these two men were known to the church, that they were believers. Just imagine Simon. I imagine Simon every day reminding his sons of his part in this story and what he saw this day. With Simon's help, Jesus is led to the place of the skull, which is on a busy road of travelers, thousands of them coming by that day into Jerusalem for Passover. The Romans' goal was to have crucifixions be as public as possible and seen by as many people as possible for the greatest terrorizing effect. In verse 23, as they arrive, someone offers wine mixed with myrrh to dull Jesus' pain. And you'll notice that Jesus refuses. He is resolved to drink the cup of suffering the Father has assigned to him. There will be no relief from this pain. The Romans would crucify the victim naked to publicly shame them. And so they strip Jesus of his clothes. And in verse 24, Mark tells us, and they crucified him. Four words so brief and concise. Don't let those words go by sanitized or domesticated by crosses we see everywhere along the side of the interstate and overlooking Pigeon Forge. This was, without a doubt, one of the most cruel, public, and shameful forms of execution the world has ever known. The Roman Cicero said, the very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. The cross is where we get the word excruciating, and that was their goal. It wasn't just death. It was torture and punishment and humiliation. Jesus was already beaten and bruised and broken. And then publicly, they would have stripped him in front of all of his clothes. They would have stretched out his arms and driven nails through his wrist to attach him to the crossbar. They would have placed him on a vertical beam where they would have then put his feet one over the other and would have driven a nail through both of his feet. And the whole thing was designed to prolong suffering. It was a brutal, horrific, 
humiliating form of execution which was perfected by the Romans to guarantee maximum suffering and invoke dread on those who witnessed it. And I am certain that if any of us would have been witnesses this day at this scene, we could not have stood before what we were seeing. On top of this torture and shame, verses 26 through 32 are filled with mocking and scorn. Jesus was dying to save the world, and while he should have been dying to a chorus of gratitude and praise, instead we find him dying to a, to a chorus of mockery and scorn. And all of it, this whole section is just filled with irony. The inscription over his head, the king of the Jews, mocking him as a political rival of Caesar. When not only is he the king of the Jews, but the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Criminals on both sides reviling him when he is the innocent one. Those passing by mocking him, accusing him of saying that he would tear down this temple and they'd be looking at the temple, this majestic, beautiful temple, and they'd be looking at Jesus beaten and broken and mocking him saying, you said you were going to destroy that and look at you. When Jesus was saying that he was the temple, that he would destroy himself and rise after three days. And then we have these leaders challenging him to come down from the cross and saying they would believe in him, tempting him like Satan in the wilderness. They said they'd believe if he came down and we believe because he stayed up. Aren't you thankful he stayed? And trust me, He could have come down. Legions of angels were just waiting for one word from him to destroy these mockers and to rescue him. C.J. Mahaney writes this. He says, make no mistake. Jesus can descend from the cross and save himself at any moment. It isn't the nails that keep him there. It isn't the nails that keep him there. What keeps him there is what placed him there. His passion to do the will of his Father and his love for sinners like you and me. For three hours, Jesus hangs there. Look at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. This unnatural darkness begins to cover the land. Darkness like this biblically signifies God's judgment. In Exodus, the plague of darkness was God's last word to Pharaoh before the angel of death came. And this darkness in verse 33 represents another coming judgment. And the question is, 
Who is God judging? In Egypt, it was all the firstborn that would die. But this time, in this judgment, it was God's own firstborn son who was to die. And as the darkness lingers, hour after hour after hour, and as God's judgment lingers, hour after hour after hour, Jesus, in verse 34, finally cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was not a cry of physical pain or fear of death. I don't think Jesus was even aware of the nails in his hands anymore or in his feet. This was a cry of something he had never experienced for all eternity. This is the Son of God experiencing separation by and being forsaken by his Father. And Jesus had eternal fellowship and the favor of his Father for all eternity. Long before anything was spoken into existence, long before Adam and Eve and before sin entered into creation, from eternity past, perfect love and fellowship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now forsaken. Because he is bearing God's wrath for our sins. Just consider the weight of sin upon the Savior's shoulders. Consider what the Father is seeing in Jesus at this moment and what he is judging him for. One commentator says, consider for the sins of abortion, adultery, anger, arrogance, backbiting, bearing false witness, bitterness, blasphemy, bribery, complaining, coveting, coarse joking, deceit, despising the poor, disregarding the Lord's people on the Lord's day, disrespecting your parents, envy, evil thoughts, fornication, fraud, gluttony, gossip, greed, harsh words, hate, idolatry, laziness, losing your temper, lust, lying, malice, murder, pride, racism, rage, rape, rioting, scoffing, selfish ambition, showing favoritism, slander, sloth, stealing, violence, witchcraft, worldliness, loving yourself, not loving your neighbor, and not loving God, to name a few sins. For all those and more, Christ was being punished. He who knew no sin was made to be sin. 
Isaiah 53 tells us that He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This was in our place. This was our sin being punished. This was our iniquity, our transgressions. He is our substitute. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a Savior we have in Jesus Christ. I remember hearing a famous story of pioneers who were making their way across the plains. One day they were horrified to note a long line of smoke in the west stretching for miles across the prairie. And soon it was evident that the dried grass was burning fiercely and coming toward them rapidly. And there was seemingly no escape from the flames. One man only seemed to have understanding as to what could be done. He gave the command to set fire to the grass behind them. And then when a space was burned over, the whole company moved back upon it. As the flames roared on toward them from the west, a little, gar- a little girl cried out in terror, Are you sure we shall not all be burned up? And the man replied, My child, the flames cannot reach us here, for we are standing where the fire has already been. As we draw near to the cross, we are standing where the fires of God's judgment burned themselves out on Christ. And all who are standing in Christ are safe forever, for they are now standing where the fires have already been. This is why we take ten looks at the cross for one look at our sin. This is why we preach the gospel to ourselves every day. This is why we keep the main thing the main thing, for here is where we find safety and forgiveness of our sins. And in verse 37, we find an end to this suffering and judgment. Look at verse 37. It says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. This loud cry is probably what John records as his last words. It is finished. And with his last breath, Jesus has totally destroyed the power of Satan of sin and of death. And immediately, immediately as he dies, Mark 
tells us this in verse 38. Look at verse 38. As soon as he breathes his last, it says, And the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. And this is a life-altering sentence that can be so easy to pass over quickly and to overlook as we read about this and we can miss the significance of what is happening here. This curtain was instructed by God to be put in the temple as a barrier between the holy place and a sinful people. This wasn't a flimsy piece of wallpaper. This was heavy and thick like a wall. It separated the holy of holies where God's glory dwelled. And it separated the people from the presence of God as a protection for them because God's glory would consume them. And we read that only the high priest could come through the curtain and only one day each year on the holiest day. And he had to bring sacrifices and purify himself and have atonement for his sins before he could enter in. This curtain in verse 38 is a loud, visible, constant reminder that it is impossible for anyone sinful to come into God's presence. This is a large do not enter sign. And as Jesus finishes his sacrifice and atones for our sins, God himself tears the curtain in half from top to bottom just to be clear who did this. Signifying for us full and free access to God for all who come by faith in Jesus Christ. People from every tribe and language and people and nation. No more sacrifices, no more day of atonement, no more great high priest. Jesus' death has created a new way into God's presence. And this way is open for all to come through this one final sacrifice, which means you are invited to come. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, the rent is not in one corner, but in the middle. It is not a slight rent through which we may see a little, but it is rent from top to the bottom. There is an entrance made for the greatest sinners. If there had been only a small hole cut through it, the lesser offenders might have crept through. But what an act of abounding mercy is this, that the veil is rent in the midst and rent from top to bottom so that the chief of sinners may find ample passage. For believers, this means there is no hindrance to the fullest and freest access to God. This is such good news for us. Behind the curtain, 
You're not going to find some little old man like the Wizard of Oz pulling levers with no real power. Behind this curtain is the almighty, majestic, glorious, sovereign, holy, and merciful Father. And Jesus has made a way for us. And if you are like me, you may be asking yourself, Am I? Am I using this? I mean, when, with this truth that I have access to God, am I taking advantage of this? I mean, what, what does this mean in my everyday life as I go to work or I'm taking care of the kids or hanging out with roommates or just living my life? It's like I've been given this golden ticket into the chocolate factory and I'm outside on the curb eating circus peanuts. I actually kind of like those, but I know most people don't. So it's like we have this ticket. Am I taking advantage of this? What does this look like? I think, I think it's what Paul means when he says that we can pray without ceasing. That we have this open paid for access to God constantly. That we don't have to bring a sacrifice. We don't have to go through some process to atone for our sins. We don't have to beat ourselves up to make a way, to make ourselves worthy to enter. We can come in in Jesus' name anytime with any burden, any concern, any request. We can just come all day, anytime, no matter where we are. We can bring our burdens to God, our anxieties, our cares, our worries, our requests to God to save family members and co-workers and strangers we see. Every time, each time we feel stressed or overwhelmed, every time we're tempted, each time we read a headline and we feel fear jumping up in our hearts. There is nothing too big and nothing too small. We can bring it all continuously, all the time. The way has been opened by Jesus for us to come to God. Even when we feel ashamed or we feel like we haven't done enough or we feel like failures, the curtain is torn. We can just come and we can confess to God our weakness and our despair and our need for help. And he welcomes us in Jesus' name. Listen to Hebrews 10 as it instructs us the implications of this curtain being torn in two. Hebrews 10 verses 19 through 20 says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Do you see the implications of the cross and the curtain being torn into? We can draw near to God. And that was the goal 
of Jesus dying for our sins so we could be reconciled to God, so we could know him and draw near to God, which makes sense that immediately after Jesus breathes his last, the way is opened for all to come. And what we need this week, listen, what your soul needs, you're not going to find out there. You're not going to find it out there, okay? You're not going to open the news. You're not going to turn on the TV and find what your soul needs this week. You're not going to find the answers to your burdens and your concerns and your cares and your anxieties. Where you're going to find what you need is right here behind this curtain. And Jesus has made a way for you. Let's draw near to God. Let's go to Him and pray to Him and hear Him through His Word. Let's have fellowship with God this week. It's what Jesus has purchased for us. And we can come with confidence. We can come boldly into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus. Finally, verse 39 We finally arrive at the destination Mark has been taking us since the first sentence of his gospel when he wrote to the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. No person yet in Mark's gospel has figured this out. The demons have called him the Son of God, but right here in verse 39 is the first confession by a person that Jesus is the Son of God. And how ironic that it is one of the Roman centurions who were there crucifying him who is the first one to confess this. Every Roman coin of this time was inscribed, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. The only person a loyal Roman would ever call the Son of God was Caesar. But this centurion recognizes who the true Son of God is. It is Jesus Christ. And if you are still wondering, who is this Jesus? Let the one who crucified him and is standing Next to him, as he dies, testify to you today, truly this man was the Son of God. And if you can behold that, if you can believe that this is God's Son dying for your sins, you can be saved. Confess and turn from your sins. Confess faith in Jesus Christ. Confess truly this man was the Son of God. Mark walks us to Golgotha and he brings us to the foot of the cross to behold the Savior dying for our sins. And he finishes this section by preparing us for Sunday. Remember, all of this took place on Friday. But Sunday's coming. This last section In our text is all details preparing us for what we already preached on at Easter from Mark chapter 16, 
the resurrection. He introduces us to these women and he gives us their names, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph and Salome. Each one of them knew Jesus. Each one ministered to him. Each one saw him die. They saw the tomb where he was laid. They are the ones who will see the stone rolled away. They are all eyewitnesses to the central facts of the gospel. The core of our faith rests in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and Nazareth. And by us, for us, it's by faith. But they got to see it with their eyes. And Mark wants us to know their names because they witnessed. He truly died and he truly rose again. And so all these details, Joseph of Arimathea going to Pilate, Pilate confirming that yes, he was dead, bringing the body, clothing it in a linen shroud, placing it in the tomb, putting the stone over the tomb. All of these details are preparing us for Sunday so that these individuals can testify to us that truly this man rose from the dead. And just as we have been crucified with Christ, we will rise with him. Today, this week, this month, this year, with all that's going on in our world and in our hearts, let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's draw near to the cross. Let's draw near with confidence to our God. This is what our souls need. Let's take 10 looks at the cross for every one look at our sin. Let's take 10 looks at the cross for every look at the news. Let's take 10 looks at the cross for every look at statistics. Let's live at the foot of the cross and live a cross centered life. And let's be freshly amazed at the love of Christ for sinners like us. Let me conclude with this quote from J.C. Ryle, a 19th century pastor who's been a good friend walking alongside us throughout this whole series on Mark. He says this, Let us leave this passage with the deepest sense of Christ's unutterable love to our souls. Let us remember that we are corrupt, evil, and miserable sinners. Let us remember who the Lord Jesus is, the eternal Son of God, the maker of all things. And then let us remember that for our sakes, Jesus voluntarily endured the most painful, horrible, and disgraceful death. Surely, the thought of this love should constrain us daily to live not unto ourselves, but unto Christ. Let the cross of Christ be often before our minds, rightly understood No object in all Christianity is so likely to have a sanctifying as well as comforting effect on our souls. Let's pray.
Well, Father, I pray for every person listening to this message today, that you would comfort their souls, that you would fill them with fresh faith and confidence in knowing Christ loved them and gave himself up for them. And I pray, I pray this morning that you would fill us with love for you, God, and a fresh zeal and passion for the cross of Jesus Christ. Comfort our souls, Lord, this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.